evening, this is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered, focused, decisive action and inspired outcome. Our spotlight is on knowledge work, and my guest is David Bullock. You've seen him featured in Entrepreneur Magazine and Fast Company, NBC Online. To reach David, go to his website, davidbullock.com. Fascinating topic. Let's get to it. I'm happy to have you back. Last time we uh, talked a little bit about your background, but for those who may not have heard your first time with us, tell us a quick, uh, you know, uh, background. Well, I'm a, I'm a degree mechanical engineer uh, for since 1990. Went from there into uh, manufacturing with like the Dupont of the world and Mobile Oil Corporations. Moved from that into the robotic industry. Uh, worked my way from process engineering into sales. Became a salesperson and had a, a very good run there. We were able to uh, accomplish a hundred million dollars in industrial sales in a seven-year period. And then in 04, I made the leap and became an entrepreneur, went out on my own, and have now been a business owner since uh, 2004 until now, primarily doing a lot of work on the Internet um, and that type of thing. And our, our, our most recent accomplishment in 08, we actually chronicled uh, President Barack Obama's use of social media as he obtained the presidency in 08, and we actually blueprinted that whole process and that became a book which then took us all over the world speaking. And then now we have, have retooled again, and now I'm working with a company. Um, co- I'm a co-founder of a company called CEO Mastery, where we're doing executive training and, and, and high-level project management for companies. That's what I'm doing these days. Wow, that's awesome. Wonderful. Uh, you became an entrepreneur, and I know we have talked, and, you uh, mentioned something called knowledge work and uh, listing of knowledge, creating your own economy. Um, why don't you get into that? What is that all about, and how did that help you? Well, knowledge work, let's, let's put a little background on it. As I said, I came, I was an engineer for a long time working in manufacturing, and I realized that, that when you're making something, it's mm-hmm. limited because it has cost associated with it, it has overhead. It has to be stored. It takes electricity. It, there's a limitation to it. And there's also infrastructure that's required to make that thing valuable. I noticed that in, in, that in stark contrast to what I call knowledge work, if you're dealing with human capital, if you're dealing with skills and expertise that you carry with you, then your economy is with you because you're working with just pure knowledge. It doesn't take up any space. It doesn't take up any time. It's an idea transfer that then impacts and makes a difference somewhere else. Now, Mm -hmm. I didn't coin the phrase knowledge work. Knowledge work comes from a a management consultant, first coined by a guy named Peter Drucker is his name. I believe it was 1959 that he talked about this thing called the knowledge worker, and that was someone who knew how to take information or take data and make it into a valuable information that then could be applied in a value-added way within an organization or to an individual. That's what knowledge work is. Wow. Well, as for the knowledge that we take with us, if we have come from the 9-to-5 working world into entrepreneurship, many people uh, really forget those skills and don't, uh, don't list them. How, how did it help you and what were the steps that you took? Well, one of the things, uh, one of the things you're listening to the audience, I, I would encourage you to do this immediately. 
actually sit down and, and you've had jobs. From the time that you've been 13 years old or whenever you started working, you've been doing something. Every one of those job occupations or those experiences, they have some intrinsic value. You learned something. Case in point, when I was 13 years old, I had a lawn cutting business. And I learned in the lawn cutting business that you had to manage your money and you had equipment and you had to handle customer service. And you also had liability, meaning you could get hurt while you were, you were cutting grass or you could get too hot. Those things were the lessons from a, a, a simple thing like cutting grass a couple of times a week. But I remember cutting grass one weekend and realizing that I could make $50 in a weekend. And at 12 years old, $50 in a weekend is a goodly amount of money. And then I learned from that same lawn cutting, cutting business that my buddy that because I had the business, I could hire them out. And I would sit, and they would cut the grass, and I would give them a portion of the money. And now I had a scalable business. See, so something as, as, as mundane or as juvenile as lawn cutting had a, a lesson to it. So what I would encourage your listeners to do is to list every job, everything that you worked on from, the top, from as far back as you can remember up till now. Because what I find is what people do is after they leave one job or one occupation, they forget about it. Like that's my, in my past. I don't do that anymore. But the lessons that you learned in that particular situation carry forward into the, into whatever you're doing next. And what happens is people leave a job, they're nine to five, they get fired, they get laid off, they leave, they resign, something happens, and they, they like curtain off that piece of their life and don't build upon it. And that is, and that will kill you if you're trying to, again, move forward and have a built-upon career as opposed to starting all over again every time you get a new position. Mm-hmm. The, the idea now, the idea now is that it's always moving to what's next, what's next, what's next. Mm-hmm. Not, you're not going to be in one place now for 20 years. Not going to happen. Not anymore. The economy doesn't allow it. How fast do you think the economy is turning now, and what do you see us in the next 10 years as many people will change jobs more than several times in a lifetime now? Well, I think I think it's the, the, the job market is, is going to become what I call more portable, meaning it goes with you. You know, have computer, have Internet, have skills in your head that you have to market yourself. You have to make the value for it. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more of that because, I mean, when you have a website called dailyjobcut.com that scours the Internet and tells you who's getting, you know, what places are being getting laid off, who went bankrupt, what stores are closing, and that's just, it has normal news that thousands upon thousands of people are losing their jobs, their nine to five every day, then obviously if jobs are being lost, those people have to do something or they will not survive. So I think this churn rate is going to actually, I don't think it's going to stabilize for quite some time, no matter what anyone says. Businesses are are reconfiguring now. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's look at at what's happened in the last several years. All of the manufacturing, well, not all of it, a lot of the manufacturing left the United States and moved to China. Mm -hmm. And that was a big deal. A lot of the customer service left the United States and went to India and and, and into the Pacific Rim. Now, now, what is happening now? A lot of that manufacturing is coming back to the United States because the economies have changed. So, look, we had something some years ago where 
jobs left, now they're coming back. Who says they're not going to go somewhere else? So mm-hmm. this job churn, this job churn is not just a matter of um, people losing their jobs. It's a matter of they, they, the jobs are actually moving to other parts of the world now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so these jobs are moving around, and uh, for, for now they're coming back. Prayerfully, a lot more people are hoping that they, they wind up staying, but that may not be be the case. Right. You yep. mentioned a financial freedom profile and um, how technology now is, is actually replacing a lot of things. Can you get into these two uh, topics? Oh, well, let's start with the technology of replacing a lot of, of, of mundane jobs. Mm-hmm. Anything that is repetitious, and I mean any, almost anything, that does not require any thinking can be automated. I was in the robotic industry, and I remember, and it was well over 20 years ago, we put one robot into a, a booth at GM that was spraying, you know, putting paint on a car. And I remember this old, older gentleman walking and said, you just got rid of your grandkid's job right there, looking at me and saw this robot. Now I'm a young kid. I'm 20-something years old. I'm just saying I'm doing my job. I'm not worried about grandkids right now. Um, I'm just putting this robot in because that's what I'm supposed to do. He was absolutely correct. That robot was replacing his job. Mm-hmm. And the question is, are you just are you just going to be replaced, or are you going to upgrade your skills? Because this robot needs to be programmed, it needs to be maintained, it needs to be serviced. It 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 in itself, although it replaces one job, it creates five. If you can see those jobs being created, so that's what I mean. That anything can be can be replaced by technology, from any especially anything manual can be replaced, but let it let it not be something where you're just typing something or it's a form or even some forms of research can be handled with technology. So that definitely is something that we need to look at. Now, if you look at that in turn, we said the end of the financial freedom blueprint. Now, the financial freedom blueprint is looking at can you see the opportunities that are being created with the displacement of these jobs and with the displacement of the of these tasks being outsourced and or automated. That, I think, is where the real skill is now. Can you take the knowledge of here's what's happening now, here's what's being displaced, and see where the market is going next, and you show up there? And I think personally, and this is just my view, that the place where there will always be opportunity will be human development, workforce development, helping people to learn how to think about what they should be thinking about, that's not going to change because every time something dynamic happens in the marketplace, people have to think differently so that they can act differently. Right. So, okay, we're going to be replaced, and I know it's cost-effective, and I can see major and smaller now companies getting ready to do that. What should we, as uh, people who are, just starting our businesses, um, also be looking for, is there any other trend that you see that's coming down the pike? Well, the, the need for, for good communication, mm-hmm. I, the need for good communication, I think, is one of the most valuable skills that anyone will ever have. Meaning, can you speak and articulate your idea quickly and succinctly? Can you get your point across? Can you write? 
again, it goes back into communication. I mean, a human body can only do a couple of things. It can move around and it can communicate. That's it. That's right. it. Okay? So right. the ability to, to communicate effectively what your idea is, or more importantly, your value proposition for the idea, I think will be the most important skill to have. If you can't communicate, you're done. Notice, if you notice even the President of the United States, because he speaks well and because he can convey a message that motivates people, that is valuable. That piece of, that piece is, I, I can't even begin to speak how valuable that is. Now, the second skill I think that people really need to understand is when you're designing a business, right. design it correctly at the beginning. Know where the money is at the beginning. Know that it's scalable at the beginning. Don't let the money or the monetization be an afterthought. That old adage of if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life and don't worry about the money. Wait a minute. Business equals monetization and money. Right. So why in the world would you start a business and not know where the money's coming from? Well, I'm doing it for the love. Well, that's great, but when the electric bill comes, Love is not going to pay for the electric bill. Now, yes, you want to be motivated. You definitely want to be motivated to do what needs to be done, but pick a business that makes money. And if, here's what I've learned. If you pick a business that actually is monetizable, really does make money, then you will have enough of the resources to do what you love. Amen. <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. the, the, other distinction, the other distinction is people don't understand that it takes just as much to sell a $3,000 item or a $30,000 item, it actually takes less effort to sell a high-ticket item to someone who wants it, they need it, and they can afford it. It takes less effort to sell that and it takes to sell something for $39. You know why? Because the $39 item or the $19 item is competing against dinner mm -hmm. at McDonald's, a couple pizzas, mm -hmm. a bottle of wine, which means... But something that is $30,000, $40,000, $3,000, it's competing against nothing except the need and want of that client. That's it. Do they really want it? Yes or no. And do they want to pay that amount? Yes or no. Not, well, I could spend this money for dinner tonight. And what I notice is that most entrepreneurs, most business owners, especially when they start out, they, take, they, they say, well, if I sell it cheaply, then people will buy more of it. That's volume thinking. That's manufacturing thinking. That means you've got to sell a bunch of something to make any amount of money. I'd right. rather sell one or a half of one and make all the money all the money in one shot than to have to sell a thousand of anything. It's harder to sell a thousand than it is to sell one. It just is. Now, we um, are also talking about people now creating their own economy. America was built on entrepreneurship and... Um, you know, that's how I think that this country is going to come back. Not everyone, though, is going to become an entrepreneur. What do you say to this? Well, let's look at the, the, the entrepreneurial spirit in the United States was alive and prosperous for great, a great many centuries, years, mm -hmm. until the corporation became the new model. The corporation became the new model that can command and control. This is the president, vice president. Here's the layers, and here you are, the worker, around the Rockefeller era, when, when those corporations were being built so that you would keep people, you give them benefits, you tell them you're going to take care of them for the rest of their lives, work a little bit, I'm going to give you just enough money 
so that you'll be comfortable, not wealthy, not to be not to have an extraordinary life, but just enough so you gotta come back next week, next year, next decade, because it, because you want this stability. Now the thing is, the stability of business is not predicated on anything except sales. <laughs> That's it. So since the stability of a business is predicated on nothing but sales, and we know that businesses go out of business, we're watching that in droves right now, and we also know that every business was started by an individual who had an idea, who put a structure around it, and then grew it large, and then incorporated other people into the business to support the idea. Now, we know that, well, I'm, I'm going to assume that we know that that's exactly what happened over and over and over again. We hear the stories of Sears Roebuck, where, well, this guy was a watchmaker, and this guy, this guy had watches, and this guy had a, had a repair stand. They got together, and it just grew and grew and grew and grew until it became Sears Roebuck and Company. Mm-hmm. Or you have the guys from Hewlett Packard who was like, you know, we're going to create a calculator, and we built it in our garage, and then that became Hewlett Packard. Okay. Okay? We, we know these stories of someone with an idea that grew and grew and grew. Those people started by creating what? A personal economy for themselves that became the personal economy of thousands of people. That's just a cycle. Yeah, I agree. You know, and many people think, well, these people just had a stroke of luck. You know, they built a system around. Right. Yeah, they built that system. Um. We have seen, you know, the passing of uh, a Steve Jobs and, you know, Microsoft and all these uh, things that have been built probably within the last 30 years within this country. Yet also at the same time, you mentioned that many jobs are being sent overseas. Do you ever think that we'll see a boom like that again? Oh, like the tech boom that happened in the, I think it was the late 90s, early, early, through the 90s? Um, I think that... I doubt that we're going to see anything like that because a lot of those models were built on, they weren't business models. They were just, it was an idea economy. You got okay. a good idea, this thing called the Internet, and, and people just throwing money at it as though because they threw money at it, they thought it would grow. What happened in the, what happened in the 90s with the dot-com boom and then bust was just, was wishful thinking. That was just a poor, that, but wait a minute, I'm thinking about something here. That situation which exploded, and then mm-hmm. imploded, which is what happened, is the same thing that happened just recently with the, the housing crisis here, the mortgage debacle that we had here. It exploded. Everybody was getting in. Everybody was getting money. And then it imploded, and the whole thing came toppling down. It was mm-hmm. the same cycle, except it was in a different industry. One was an idea economy that was, was unsupported because there was no revenue. And the other one, wow, this is interesting, the other one was was an idea economy based on a, a, a you know, paper, a financial instrument, unsupported, again, by revenue. Okay. The people who were getting the, the people who were getting those mortgages did not have the revenue to support the mortgages. And if you look at both of these, these, you know, b- bust situations, boom and then bust, both of them were unsupported by the revenues that needed to be in place, which goes back to the business model of, the business is in business and is only supported by one thing, sales. Right. That's it. Mm. So you see, so you, don't, mm. you don't see that happening again. 
Well, no, I, I see it happening because we what will happen as humans is we will forget about what happened in the computer industry. We will forget what happened in the mortgage industry, and we'll find another industry like this one that will be unsupported by revenue. The money will go in, and it will topple the economy again. Okay. And, it, and now that I say it that way, I'm going to be looking out for what is the next thing that people just going to, like, set up and bolster and move that is not supported by revenue, and it's going to run up, and then it's going to implode. And I bet you, and I would almost bet that there's going to be, it's going to be an unsupported revenue situation again. But now here, but you also have to recognize something else. Even in those downtime or when things are imploding, someone is making money on going up and someone is making money on the way down. Right. And so what you, what, what someone has to do as a business owner is to position themselves in the, in that situation so that they can make money on the way up and be flexible enough to make money on the way down. Right. Now, you're, you're speaking on something that uh, we both may know um, or have knowledge of. The uh, real estate market has uh, now prices for real estate have, have dropped, but there are people and foreign investors that are coming and scooping up tens of thousands of homes in certain divisions like Las Vegas, California, etc. Are you familiar with this? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the money right now, the world the world economy has shifted. A lot of the money that has been sitting and waiting for such an event has been sitting in the Pacific Rim. That's where all the money is now. And they're coming to the United States and said, okay, it's, it's now time to buy. We're bottom, facing bottom prices now. It's time to buy. And they, and they own a lot of New York, a lot of, uh, a lot of Las Vegas, and they're scooping up because it's time to buy. But you also have to realize, if you go back to a strategy, the people in the Pacific Rim, they create 100-year business plans, not here's my five-year projection. They'll sit and wait for the opportunity to be able to move forward. To be successful, you cannot be an opportunist until you have actually fully the opportunity, meaning you create the opportunity by being ready for it, and when the time is right, then you come in and, and actually take, it, take advantage of it. You can't just run in, make money quickly, and hope that that is going to continue because those are long-term plays. So, again, this goes back to really can you, can you see what's happening? Do you, or you want to apply knowledge? Because it goes back to what we started with. They are, they, they are seeing here's an opportunity based on what we know. Here's how we're going to move and invest our time, effort, and money, and now we're going to take advantage of it. And again, if you, as I'm looking at this now, it goes back to actually having information that's valuable, and then acting, and then having the resources to act upon it. That's what that's. It, it's, I, it's what I'm getting to is that it's the same cycle, it's the same thinking, no matter what the scenario is, over and over again. All right. Well, you mentioned uh, the eastern uh, part, well, the, the Pacific Rim. Now let's move mm-hmm. it back to the eastern side. We have many mm-hmm. great cities, Detroit, Washington, D.C. And let's mention Detroit. Uh, that has okay. gone down because of the, uh, you know, auto industry, et cetera. That was once a mm-hmm. thriving city. And I'm sure you have many others like it. Um, do you see many of these investors and whatnot investing in places like that because of the historical value? No. 
I mean, those, those a lot, listen, look at where they're investing. You're talking about New York. You're talking about Las Vegas. You're talking about Branson, Missouri. You're talking about it's just, the economy is shifting towards entertainment and experience, and and not to and not gravitating to manufacturing. Those yeah. cities like Pittsburgh, Detroit, that were built on manufacturing. When manufacturing is now very mobile. Manufacturing can be displaced, but an experience is tied to a place. Las Vegas is an experience economy. The bright lights, the big city, the casinos. Dubai is an, experience, is an experience economy. It used to be called tourism, but really it's an experience. You can only get that experience over there. But I can manufacture something anywhere. I see the, the, the natural resources. See, so I, I mean, so if, if, if my thinking is correct, and I have to go and uh, actually validate this, I'm thinking that people are now buying and investing where there is a unique experience based on location as opposed to gravitating to it has to be made here because we know now nothing has to be made anywhere anymore. Sure. Jobs and manufacturing can be shipped anywhere. So what do you see for these individual uh, cities like the Pittsburghs and the uh, the old, uh, you know, manufacturing places? Because they do have some historical value. Do you just see them going to waste completely? No, no. I think I think what it, what you, what have to happen there is going to be more of a marketing situation okay. where they're going to have to to reposition themselves as historical. I mean, here's what we were doing. You will see this here and only here. I think it's more it's more of a question now with them, and it's, it's again it's a matter of repositioning the information, repositioning what is there, as opposed to trying to bring manufacturing back. I mean, the only way that you bring manufacturing back, let, let's look let's look at the car industry. The car industry was historically up north for many a year, and then and then and then the union became a situation there, and then those same car companies noticed. The car companies that came in from other countries like Japan, Nissan, Hyundai, um, from uh, Korea, um, Honda from Japan, uh, um, Volkswagen, all of, their, all of them have located where? Here in the South. The South, that's right. Right. We have in Chattanooga, here in, in Georgia, um, in, in Alabama, uh, Tennessee. Those car companies have now moved here. Now, and look at how they, how they set up. Non-unionized, okay, number one, which non-unionized, a lot of contractor-based, a lot of innovation. Anyone in the plant has the ability to make a change or offer offer innovation at any given time. And And those plants have derived, not only derived, but have expanded, sometimes doubling capacity within 15, 20 years. Started slowly, doubling capacity. And they're also bringing in their own communities with the, with the business. Oh, absolutely. They bring the workers in. The executives come in from somewhere else. They build their whole uh, housing structure, schools, mm-hmm. language barriers have been eradicated because they, they bring everything with them. They set up, set up shop, bring second and third uh, tier manufacturers, show up with them, the whole bit. 